We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Nosotros crecemos cuando damos. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. Welcome to ROG, Return on Generosity. I'm your host, Shannon Cassidy. This podcast celebrates generosity at work, not financial giving. Giving valuable time, mutual respect, alternative perspectives, and genuine collaboration. Our special guest today is Neil Ford. Neil has spent 25 years in advertising and marketing, creating award-winning campaigns for global power brands like Budweiser, Nexus, and Sony. He is a highly accomplished and recognized professional for his gifts, creativity, and unique perspective on the human experience. Neil is a TEDx speaker and has gained a following on social media for his inspirational videos about the better side of everyday people. What I appreciate most about you, Neil, is your genuine humanity, your authenticity. You notice the details, gain interesting insights, and share them with us in a way that I believe changes our minds. Welcome to ROG, Neil. Thank you. It's really cool to be here, and it's very cool to meet you, Shannon. And you believe, and you testify in your videos, that people are good, kind, cool, and more generous than most of us think. Could you share our, your thoughts with us about that? I've, it's my favorite subject. By and large, people are, we are evolved to be team players. And what has happened is when, when you surround people with the indications that everybody cheats, they cheat too. When you, when you surround people with negativity and you batter them with images of people being at their worst, then they think, if I'm a good person, then I'm a sucker because everybody else is being a jerk. And that seems to lead to success. And um, I just I just that has not been my personal experience in my everyday regular old life. My personal experience is that there are hundreds of small courtesies people do for you every day and you just don't notice them because they're so common. And every once in a while, somebody will do something particularly nice and it stands out. But what I'm discovering more and more is if you're tuned to look for them, it's quite extraordinary some of the really sweet things people do. And they do them in very sophisticated ways. Um, you, you may have seen the story that I posted called the EQ of the gym bro. And I was in a gym. Yes. Oh, please share that. Yeah, I love going in the early morning because it's a kind of a it's a kind of a tribe. You know, when you're there at 5.30, it's the same crew day after day. And when they're there at 5.30, they're not there to pose. They're there to do their job, right? We're going to work out. And everybody just being up at that hour, it's kind of a shared triumph. So everybody's super friendly. Well, this woman came in and you could tell she wasn't in the best of shape. And, and you could also tell from the sort of way that she approached the gym, she walked in and she kind of didn't know where everything was. So... I thought, oh, you know, this is one of those truth, those truthy moments where it's like uh, she may decide that it's too intimidating. She's going to turn on her heel and leave. And this guy that was just yoked, I mean, jacked like big muscles. He's on the he's on the bench press rack and he looks at her and he waves her over like, hey, come here a minute. And so, OK, so she comes up and he asks her to spot him. While he's lifting and it's, you know, I'm thinking to myself, what an odd choice that he would choose her to do that. 
you know, because he's pushing some pretty heavy steel. Well, you know, he goes to failure. And then she, very enthusiastically, when he finally asks for the spot, she hurls herself into it and lands the bar. And then what happens is I can't hear what they're saying. But what I'm noticing about the body language is they're talking a little bit. And then he starts to point out where everything is in the gym. And I go, oh, oh, you shrewd son of a gun. Because he saw just like I did mm. that she was unfamiliar with the place. And instead of making it obvious and saying, do you need some help? Or, you know, some women might find a little creepy if some huge Jack guy comes over and, you know, come here often, that kind of thing. So instead he has her be the one who's doing him a favor. And then that gives him permission to reciprocate the favor to point out where everything is. Oh, have you been here before, etc. And, I thought to myself, that was a really cagey, incredibly gentle way of offering help by making it not look like it was help. So I went to the, you know, when we were in the lockers afterwards, I said, I saw what you did there. I thought that was amazing. You know, and I told him, that, you know, how sophisticated it was. And he goes, well, I guess I'm more than just a pretty face. And that is the kind of kindness that you will see people do. It happens all the time, yes. but it doesn't make the news. Instead, it just makes a page on Reddit. and. You know, you know that algorithms are at work now, so the engineers are at work, so the scientists are at work, and what they're doing is they're trying to they're trying to get your attention, and they know the algorithm knows that the fastest way to get somebody's attention is to show people being awful, because it's it's entertaining the way a train wreck is all is entertaining, and it reinforces this notion amongst us that. People are trash. Might make you think that the human race is somehow awful, but it's just not. That's not my experience. Yes, I agree. So that's like an example of you know some little things that you do, all the way to the big things that you do to make impacts. But all of it matters. All of it makes a difference. And I think it's important for us to remember that those acts of kindness can be seen everywhere, including at work, where we might feel like we're competitors or that we're all overwhelmed. Um, we might also feel like we're unappreciated or we're not seen. So I'm just curious to hear what your thoughts are on generosity at work. I have, oh my gosh, several examples from my own experience. I had one boss in particular who, um, Scott Gilbert, I worked for him when we were at Sachi and Sachi. And Scott was extraordinary at, he was extraordinary at keeping his eyes open, his ears open and looking for you know, he was he was trying to create an environment where people thrived. There's this very cool word in Greek that Socrates popularized, and it was called eudaimonia, spelled E-U-D-A-I-monia. And eudaimonia is a an environment where a life where people thrive. It's a state of human thriving. And it was the it was the philosopher's belief that the the most important mission of a human being was to try to find this state of thriving and that it was that the, they had to find meaning. You know, it's almost like a Viktor Frankl uh, man's search for meaning that, mm. that the true meaning was, was to create an environment and live a life where you will help other people thrive. He was, he was perpetually fixated on trying to create an environment where people would grow and thrive. Now, in that environment, he was always trying to make sure that people were keeping their skills 
uh, updated and and giving them authority and responsibility for things so that they would grow. And ultimately, as you can imagine, mm. Shannon, you know, people leave because they, he's grown them out to get promoted elsewhere. So I left and I went to work for another company. And when I went into my new office, there were three framed pictures of him on my desk. Now, I don't know who did that. I don't think he did that, but I, but somebody, one of his partisans had done that. And that just killed me. I, I was thinking, I'm sitting down at my new desk and yeah. I'm going, I don't know what these people are about. I, I love that. And I think it's a great example of what generosity means. Yeah. And using creativity, using your gifts, because very often we're investing in people in ways that we're not personally going to benefit from. You mentioned creativity. Tell me more about the value of environments where we can be creative. And I think that also leans into that environment where people can thrive. So creativity, stimulating creativity, sort of my, that's my favorite topic. Um, I believe that human beings are best when you unleash their creativity. I mean, look, this is why this is why human beings have made the progress that we have. It's because we're always thinking of new ideas. We're mashing things up. Okay, so how do you optimize for creativity in a workplace? Well, um, I'll, I'll take this in two different bites. The first bite is when you get people together in groups, for example, in a brainstorming scenario, they're typically their IQs drop about 15 points. The London Society did some research on this. What they discovered was that the reason that the IQ drops is because instead of using your whole neocortex in order to think of new ideas and new combinations, what happens is that you devote a portion of your brain now to figuring out the hierarchy at the table and trying to gauge your status and trying to move your status by contributing to the dialogue. But you're very unlikely to take risks because risky behavior in that scenario means you might lower your status, you might trigger a, that's a stupid idea, that kind of remark. And that pecking order shuts down people's neocortex and lets the amygdala take over. It lets the limbic mind take over, which is the seat of emotions. And that's when things devolve into just a, a big contest. And all that happens then is it's old ideas. It's old recycled ideas that worked before because they're safe and it's a big lose for the table. All right. What you can overcome that with is a sense of safety and togetherness and the sense that we are not in competition. Well, that's where a leader really, really matters because a leader needs to be able to, in that scenario, create an environment of eudaimonia, of human thriving. And there are a variety of techniques to do that, one of which is to say, all right, here's the assignment, but let me explain why everybody is sitting at this table, why each why each of the players are here and what my expectations are for your contribution and why I believe that we should listen to everybody's opinion and I'll go around and I'll make sure everybody gets heard. You know how it goes, Shannon, typically the way that a, cre that a brainstorming will go is somebody will be standing up, somebody of authority will be standing up at the whiteboard and they'll have their marker in their hand and they'll say something silly like we need 50 new ways of of selling more units of X and all ideas are good, you know, nothing, no bad ideas here and go, you know, just shout out whatever's on your mind. And well, it's, it's asinine. You have, you've created an environment where they are competing with one another. You know, there's always some dominant player who it's all about winning and not new ideas and new thinking. What they would do is 
they would create a five minutes of silence where everybody writes down their ideas based on some certain question, giving them a chance to, you know, settle the brain and let out their thoughts. And then you can imagine the boss saying, listen, as we go around the room and we read these things, it is highly likely that you're going to hear ideas more than once. Don't be ashamed because you had the same thought that the first three people had. And also, it often helps to hear ideas multiple times because it it tends to be one of those scenarios, well, wow, 80% of this table had that same thought. Maybe there's some credence to that. Um, But there's another reason why it's so great to do this five minutes of silence and then read the responses. And that is that it's truly the reactions to the ideas, not the ideas. What happens is when somebody has a thought, we usually contain the germ of something that other people react to and they say, oh, you know what would make that more interesting is if we did X or Y to that. And they go, oh, that's interesting. I had this similar idea, but slightly different. This was my version of it. And what happens is now the table is fully engaged in the discussion. But, and here's the significant part, everybody takes ownership of that idea now. And once everybody's contributed a little bit, it becomes our idea and not Denise's idea or Jack's idea. And when you have disconnected it from somebody owning that idea, you have shut you have shut down the sabotage that often happens when people will point out the flaws of something. And so this is just one small example of how a leader can create an environment where you reduce competition, increase the broadness of ownership of thinking, put everybody's fates together and with this, people are freer to express themselves. And significantly, they feel safer. As soon as you don't feel safe, your brain activity changes. It stops being about the ideas. It stops being able, you know, it stops you focusing on what matters. And it keeps you focused on, I think I might be in danger of losing my job. You know, that's what happens. If you create an environment of overt competition, people spend at least half of their brain power worked on their working on their next job. And, <laughs> and, you know, whereas really, really great bosses, they have a way of binding t- people together in, you know, there's a, there's a new thing that I'm focusing on, Shannon. I think this might be the most significant thing I've thought about for the last two years. It's the idea of wow. someone who believes in you. Mm-hmm. And, I don't think there's anything quite so profound in impacting a life than somebody who believes in you. And uh, I'll give you an example from literature. Are you familiar with the author Charles Bukowski? He's sort of a modern day beat. No. He died recently. Bukowski was a poet. He was an author. He wrote Barfly. He wrote Post Office. He was he was very, very big in, in artsy circles in Hollywood for a time and made a number of his books into movies. Uh, Mickey Rourke was in Barfly. In any case, Bukowski was not any kind of success at all. He was a blue-collar guy working in the post office. He would occasionally get something published in some ridiculous little magazine that had a circulation of 24. And but the guy, there was a guy who had a, I think he had a chain of hardware stores or something. And he just loved this guy's work. He was a Bukowski fanboy. 
And he, he goes to Charles Bukowski and says, what are, what are they paying you at the post office? And he goes, I'm getting 50 bucks a month or something like that. And he goes, I'll pay you 100 bucks a month to quit that job and write full time. And he goes, okay, well, oh my goodness. what do you want out of it? And he goes, uh, I don't know. Uh, I just want you to write full time. If you come up with a book, I'll try to publish it. He created Black Sparrow Press just to publish Bukowski's books. And they took off. And not only that, but he became he became this sort of patron saint of like three or four other pretty significant authors. Not, not J.K. Rowling, right? You know, not big popular authors, but he unlocked it. He unlocked a genre. And now, just let's put it in a business context. When a boss says, I, I see this potential in you, but I think you're making the following mistakes, or, or let me help you make the best of your skills. Tell me what you, why you're not doing this. Or, you know, you're cultivating somebody mm. and you're mentoring them. And that just, even if they're not doing anything, just them communicating to you, I think you've got more than you're showing, is likely to unlock somebody. Imagine imagine being a student and getting that kind of attention. Imagine uh, in a company, you can, you can change the destiny of companies that way. Just because mm. somebody felt like that, well, because you know, imposter syndrome is a real thing. It's people just not thinking they deserve more or they're not really throwing their full weight behind something because they don't think it's any good. And yes. somebody who believes in them can change that balance of power. That is so interesting, Neil. And I'm, I'm going to think more about that. And I see a correlation between that idea you were sharing around creativity and the creation of a safe environment for people to thrive because I, I was not aware that our brains kind of our IQ shrinks yeah. because we have this fear of you know status and recognition and all of that and that could be a big reason why we're not hearing some of the brilliance and the innovative ideas from people in on the team so if we want to find someone to believe in we have to create an environment where they can demonstrate their gifts so I just see this like as a, you know, a two-sided coin or however you want to look at it, where we have to, as leaders, create environments where people feel safe and then give them a chance to shine and then really believe in them and, and cheer them on. Well, there are two wonderful books I'd leave, like to leave with people, recommendations. One is called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Mm -hmm. oh, so yep, good. Yeah. And the other one is Turn the Ship Around. I cannot remember the name of the admiral, but it was a case that he based, he was famous as being one of these officers as a captain of a submarine crew. He could take the worst in the fleet and turn it into the best. And it very much involved this philosophy. When you leave this vessel, it is, you will be judged not by what, not by what you've done, but by the legacy you leave. You'll be judged by the performance of the people you've left behind. In other words, some people would think, oh, you know, I left the company and it collapsed under its own weight. Ha, that just goes to show how great I was. No, it doesn't. It doesn't show anything of the kind. It shows an egomaniac who did not set up a, a succession plan sufficient to have the company thrive without them. So I'll give you an example of one small thing that he would do. 
instead of asking for permission to do something, which is very traditional in hierarchical organizations, he switched it to, you are expected to come to me and say, I intend to do this action. And I'm going to until you stop me. The beauty of it is that people, they assume responsibility for the actions that they're going to take. They, they become proactive rather than waiting for instructions. They express their intentions and it is not your job to, it, they're going to do it one way or the other unless you stop. And there are reasons why this happens, but you understand the difference. It's a very small thing, but it, it makes an enormous shift in the mind of the, the subaltern to say, mm-hmm. now I am responsible for my own initiative, my own actions and choices. And he, he or she will guide me, but I'm the one who has to initiate action. It's mm-hmm. very, very powerful um, in the armed services, especially. You will often hear that, say, for example, that the Navy SEALs are famous for their initiative. And Delta, you know, these, del- these Delta warriors... They really kind of don't wait for instructions. You give them the target. I'll get it done. We'll get it done. Don't tell me how to do it. Mm -hmm. At the end of all of your videos on YouTube, you have like a word of wisdom or a call to action. This is one of my favorites in part because one of my favorite words is in it. And it says generosity and kindness aren't a bug. They are a feature. Can you tell us a little more about that? About that? I'm quite uh, encouraged that that would be one of your favorites because this is a description of the human creature. And yes, we often are selfish and we can be argumentative and we can be quite awful, you know, but I believe that those are actually not what is central to the nature of human beings. The human superpower is cooperation. It is, it is kindness and niceness. And you look into the primates and it's the same thing. When you look into wolves, wolves have this reputation. You know, that, that phrase, lone wolf. There's no such thing as the lone wolf. There is only a, a, a little group of wolves where they take care of one another. And if you've ever seen that lineup of how wolves travel, there will be two or three very powerful uh, wolves at the front and two or three very, very powerful alphas at the back. And then there will be, the up near the front, will be the weakest of the, of the group, of the pack. And they will set the pace so that they don't get lost. The whole structure of the way wolves travel is to support the pack. And that is how human beings survived, was by caring for one another, taking care of one another, watching out for each other, and in an office scenario, kindness establishes a feeling of safety. With this feeling of safety comes increased creativity, comes better exchanges of information, comes the the happenstance, the kismet of the overheard remark, where you're not going to, when you hear the overheard remark, you don't think, oh, that's a little poker chip I'll use later, right? No, you don't think that. Instead, you go, I don't think that's true. That has not been my experience with that person. You know, or you could say, that's very interesting. Let me, let me throw a little more dimension onto that. And in an environment of open communication and a, an environment of trust, an environment of generosity where people are, they are only too happy to give 
to others, their time, their attention, their good feelings, their support, their sympathy. In an environment of generosity, you unlock speed, you unlock creativity, you unlock new ideas, and you know that new ideas are a compound interest uh, article, right? Because with every new idea, mm-hmm. that gives birth to another new idea, which that and and on and on it compounds itself. At the end of every episode, we close with an ROG takeaway tip, something that everyone can apply to their own work and lives. Here's a few that come to mind for me. One is eudaimonia to create an environment where people thrive, where we help others. And to do that, we need to create psychological safety or safety in general. So how we can create safe environments. And then the third that really resonates with me is either find someone who believes in you and appreciate them with gratitude and find someone you can believe in so that we can perpetuate this way of connecting with and supporting each other. Anything else you would add to that? I spend a lot of time storytelling and I've done just years and years of coaching people to make better presentations. And there's something that I want to point out for people's benefit. When you are telling a story, especially in a business context, do yourself an enormous favor. Do not cast yourself as the hero of that story. Do not say, I did this and I did that. And, you know, oh my God, the humble bragging on LinkedIn, it makes me nauseous. And and so, it, half of it's fake anyway. But so here's what I suggest as an alternative and why it's a good idea. Often the things that when you are telling a story, you're obviously leading to a point. There's some moral or some conclusion or some kind of th- lesson you're trying to impart. Better if you cast yourself in the role of somebody who is almost discovering it while the listener is discovering it. You get the idea that the story is really about the strengths of somebody else. And when you cast yourself that way, what happens is the listener has permission to appreciate the lesson. You become somebody sitting next to them watching the action. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your energy, your time, your storytelling. And I assure you, I'll be cheering for you. Thank you, Shannon. What a pleasure to meet you. And you are fighting the good fight. Rock on. Thanks for listening to ROG, Return on Generosity podcast. Please help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us on your favorite podcast player. And for more information, visit bridgebetween.com. We grow when we give. We grow when we give. We grow when we give.